Let battle commence. The battle of France is over. I expect that the battle of Britain is about to begin. Winston Churchill, the 18th of June, 1940. With those few words, the Prime Minister of the day finally removed any doubt that Britain was about to come under a sustained aerial attack by the Luftwaffe. Whether the attackers could be repelled was up to the pilots of RAF Fighter Command. These men, mostly young and untried in battle, would be called upon to place their lives on the line in the defence of their country. Britain had been trying frantically to rearm its air force with modern aircraft that would be up to the inevitable task that had been looming ever since the Nazis had risen to power in the mid-1930s. The modernization of the RAF fighter force had begun with the introduction of the Hawker Hurricane, which had entered into squadron service in December 1937, but, at the outbreak of war in 1939, was already outclassed in performance by the German ME-109, which could both outclimb and die faster than the British aircraft. The first of the new Spitfire fighters entered service with 19 Squadron at RAF Duxford on the 4th of August 1938. At that time there were no conversion courses or simulators, no pilot's notes for the new aircraft, and no dual-control trainer version. The commanding officer of the newly equipped squadron, Henry Cousins, later said, I was shown around the cockpit given a cheerful reminder to extend the undercarriage before I landed, wished good luck, and off I went. This was typical for all pilots transferring onto the Spitfire. The warning about not forgetting the undercarriage was particularly important as most pilots had previously flown Gloucester gauntlets or other fixed undercarriaged aircraft. The first thing even an experienced pilot like Cousins noticed was the incredible performance relative to his previous mount, the gauntlet, although the aileron controls were noticeably heavier, particularly at lower speeds. All pilots could not fail to notice the limited forward view caused by the long nose. This was partially compensated for by making a curved final approach to land and a zigzag motion while taxiing. Early problems discovered by 19 and 66 squadrons, the first two RAF units to operate the Spitfire Mark I, included oil leaks from the Merlin engine and poor starting due to the starter motor failing to turn the engine over quickly enough. Tall pilots also found the headroom limited, and all pilots, regardless of stature, complained about the undercarriage hand-pump lever which was the source of barked knuckles as their right hand came painfully into contact with part of the cockpit structure. Most of these problems were quickly fixed, an improved starter motor, a bulged canopy and, thankfully, a hydraulically operated undercarriage system, all improved the lot of the pilot. Fixing the oil leaks on the Merlin was a different matter, and these continued to plague the Spitfire throughout its service. The fixed-pitch, two-bladed wooden propeller, although good for high speeds, was unsatisfactory at the lower end of the speed range. Some improvement was obtained when this item was replaced. At first, by a three-bladed fixed-pitched unit, 
Then later, a three-bladed two-pitch unit with a fine setting for takeoff and a coarser pitch for high speed. One of the inherent dangers of the two-pitch propeller was the possibility of a pilot attempting to take off with it in coarse pitch, with potentially disastrous consequences. One pilot to be caught out in this way was the legless Douglas Bader of 19 Squadron, who received a serious head wound after crashing at 80 miles per hour when attempting to take off with his propeller in coarse pitch. Fortunately, the constant speed propeller began to be installed in 1939, with most Spitfires being so equipped by the time of the Battle of Britain. Early discussions between Geoffrey Quill and the two squadron commanders about whether the flaps were too large for this size of aircraft led to their being retained, unaltered, 